Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here are your hosts, editor Christian Berg and associate editor Mark Demko. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. It's going to be a great show today because we're going to be talking about public land bow hunting and more specifically public land access which is getting to be a bigger and bigger deal all the time is it not mr demko absolutely you know uh, one of the big concerns that always comes up from hunters no matter where you live is, is gaining access to public land worry about losing spaces and probably that's a huge deal in the west more than any place else for sure. And um, we've got a couple of guests on today's show that I'm excited to have. Two first timers. Uh, first, I've got Mr. Land Tawny, who is the CEO of uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, a group that's doing a lot of neat stuff for us throughout the country. Land, welcome to the Bowhunting Podcast. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I'm a first timer, but hopefully this goes well when we can come back. Well, you don't know if you really like us yet, so just wait a while before you recommit. And uh, also on the show today, I've got Eric Hansen, who is an attorney who does uh, a bunch of work uh, on behalf of behalf, yeah, behalf of the backcountry hunters and anglers. And you were with uh, Kecker, Van Nest, and Peters somewhere out there on the left coast, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. Happy to be here. And also uh, an avid outdoors person, Eric? I am. I'm a, a hunter, an outdoors person. Uh, I'm one of these. Uh, I've been an outdoors person since, uh, you know, since I was a kid, but uh, didn't become a hunter until about 10 or 11 years ago and uh, dove, dove in deep once I got started. So kind of hard. You don't have too many folks uh, teaching you about hunting uh, when you grow up in Los Angeles. So. Well, you know, it's funny. I grew up in Rhode Island and southern New England is uh, pretty much suburbia. And it's funny because, you know, I don't want to waste too much time on a rabbit trail, but same deal, right? I didn't start hunting until about a year after college. And so came to it as a young adult and, and kind of the same thing. I had gotten a journalism degree, ended up getting super into uh, bow hunting and ultimately made a transition from mainstream media into outdoor media. So point is, it's I, never, never too late to start. And I think actually we folks who come to it a little later have a different perspective, maybe a different appreciation than the folks who start when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. Yeah, I think that's right. I also have a journalism degree. So uh, we feel like we have a little kids make going here. Hey, guys. You know, to land and Mark, I, I, Mark, I didn't, you know, it's funny. Mark is our associate editor. I'm sure I looked at your resume when we hired you, Mark. What did you study? Uh, well, I did get a degree in English and journalism, but as, as you know, um, my career too took a different path. I started in uh, the music and arts industry. So speaking of Los Angeles, I worked in uh, uh, music and arts for many, many years, but uh, I'd always had a love for the outdoors, much like you and I didn't start hunting until I was adult, but I think I was like 18 or 19. You know, I didn't uh, have anybody get me started. My dad had quit hunting when when uh, he was younger. And so I didn't get started hunting until later. It's interesting when you hear all these different stories, you think of, you know, growing up with your your father or another family member teaching you to hunt. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so um, we've okay. talked about that over the years. Well, and I always say that Mark is the only uh, hunting magazine editor that 
that I know that has a picture with Boy George and has like <laughs> in, uh, interviewed Jethro Tull and and a whole bunch of other bands. So he's and so land. Okay, we started the whole show with a rabbit trail. I got to ask you now, round it out for the fourth. Like did, you probably didn't work in conservation your entire life either. Tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, I grew up hunting and fishing. Uh, both my parents were first full-time conservation lobbyists at our state legislature. My dad was the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation for the first 10 years of their existence until he passed away. And so I've been around kind of, I mean, I grew up hunting and fishing, grew up on my dad's back, uh, you know, chasing elk uh, on his on his back, chasing trout, and then ultimately uh, started hunting and fishing at a very young age. And so um osmosis probably a lot of what happened to me uh i got a wildlife biology degree and then uh started volunteering for an organization called the theodore roosevelt conservation partnership and that was god it's like that was 23 years ago and so uh, i actually you know i've had some other jobs i've built a lot of fence in my life i have a phd a postal digging uh degree um but uh um you know majority of my professional life has uh, been in the hunting and kind of conservation space well <laughs> So land is probably the most traditional of the four of us in terms of having had a background in all this. And he kind of came by it honestly, it sounds like through what his folks did, um, which just, you know, there's a lot of passion there, obviously, for the outdoors, Mark. And it seems like this is a good time uh, as we dive into today's main topic to remind folks that uh, when it comes to passion, you want to thank also Lancaster Archery Supply. I had mentioned they present the podcast and we want everybody to know that when you need something for your bow hunting adventures, you want to check out LancasterArchery.com. They've got the gear. They've got the knowledge. They've got the passion. And back to that passion, right? Uh, if you're a passionate bow hunter, you got to have somewhere to hunt. And that's a big thing for BHA. Uh, obviously, I think you guys are based. Are you in Montana land? Yeah, we're based in Missoula, Montana. That's where our headquarters are. But we have members in every single state. Uh, we've got chapters in every single state besides Delaware and Hawaii. Um, and those two are coming on soon. Uh, and then we've got chapters up in Canada as well. So Alberta, British Columbia, and then Yukon Territory. So um as you know, you know, there's a lot more public lands in the West, but uh, the idea is we're trying to make sure you have access to public lands and waters and the fish wildlife habitat uh, when you get there. And that's really a universal thing all across the country. Yeah. And I know, uh, you know, you're actually pretty active here in Pennsylvania, where Mark and I are, where Peterson's bow hunting is based. Uh, I know you guys do a, a pint night every year uh, at the Eastern Outdoors uh, Expo in Harrisburg. So yeah, a lot of a lot of things going on around the country. And so the reason that we're on the show with these guys today, Mark, is uh, BHA put out a press release here just recently, uh, back in May. And a while back, maybe a year or so ago, I think Onyx and the group that you had mentioned earlier, Land, the, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, I think had partnered on a kind of a geospatial study, if you will, where Onyx used all of those mapping capabilities that they've developed that, you know, most of us take advantage of now on our smartphones while we're out in the field, but actually looked at, you know, how much public land is there out there that's pretty inaccessible. And they came up with a figure of over 16 million acres of public land predominantly, you know, across the Western U.S. that is either wholly or partly surrounded by uh, private land. And then of that 16 some million acres, about half or eight 
million acres plus is something that I had never really heard about before until last month is this idea of being corner locked. So you have essentially a checkerboard pattern of, you know, and that's the other thing, being an Eastern guy, it's so weird out West. So many of your so many of your properties are literally squares or rectangles, right? And it's because you know uh, the government had like time to plat all that thing out as the frontier developed, right? Whereas back east, everything is so oddly and irregularly shaped in terms of properties. But so many areas out west, you've got these checkerboard patterns. So you literally have, you know, a block of 5,000 acres of public and then private and then public and private. So, so you got all these corners, these little inside corners that come together and it's a real problem because private landowners don't want people crossing. And of course, guys like me who don't have enough money to go buy a ranch, we want to cross uh, because I want to go from public parcel A to public parcel B. And, and I think that's my land in there and, and, and you can't keep me out. And so then we have a conflict, right? That's where I think the, the rub begins. And I think that one thing I'd like to make you know clear from the onset is that you know private property rights are very important and we you know want to make sure that we respect those private property rights and really anybody that is willfully and wanting to trespass like they should be held accountable for that they should really be held accountable for that and what we really want is just the kind of public rights to be upheld where we have like you described you know I'm not I grew up in Montana, but I didn't marry into a ranch family and I didn't come from a ranch family. And so I depend on public land almost exclusively to hunt. And so all we want is just access to the public land that is already ours. And I think, but I don't want this to be taken ever that we're trying to tread on private property rights because that's the last thing that we want to do. Well, Eric, why don't I throw it over to you to kind of lay the background? There's a particular case uh, which was the subject of the press release that came out last month. Uh, ended up writing my editorial about this for our August issue, which will be out uh, next month in July. But basically, there was uh, four guys from, I think, from Missouri, right? And they traveled out to Wyoming. Yes, Wyoming. Uh, two different years, 2020 and 2021, and I guess they were elk hunting. I'm assuming they were elk hunting, and. Uh, they used a little metal ladder to cross over a fence at one of these checkerboard corners. And I won't say anything more than that. Why don't you take it from there, Eric? Like, what did they do? What happened? And how did it, you know, kind of become a test case, if you will, for this whole issue? Sure. Yeah. So you set the background well. We've got four hunters from Missouri who wanted to come out west and do some some big game hunting in, in uh, Wyoming. And they used Onyx and to, to kind of pick out where they thought would be a good place to hunt, find some good tags that were, uh, you know, maybe easier to get than, than others. Uh, in part, I think, because uh, there's a lot of private property in the area as well as public land in that checkerboard pattern that you, that you talked about. Um, and so the first year they, they go out there and they encounter uh this corner and there's a t-post and they have they kind of swing themselves around it actually and the second year realizing it was there they build a ladder uh fabricate their a ladder to to go over uh the post and chain uh they were you know the whole point was they're trying to be very sort of cautious about stepping on or treading in um 
you know, private property. And so it set up this whole chain of events. Uh, the landowner uh, who owned property sort of, you know, in that checkerboard pattern mixed with the public land um, asked them to be prosecuted criminally for trespass. There was a trial in which they were acquitted and then he sued them for civil trespass. And that's the case that just uh, wrapped up recently. So a couple things about that. Um, obviously, okay, I mean, I, I got to play devil's advocate throughout this because there's there's a perspective from both sides, right? Like if I'm a private landowner, let's say I'm looking to buy a nice ranch out west and there are several inholdings that are entirely compassed within my ranch of public land. You know, so I got 500 acres there, a thousand acres there. Man, I love that, right? Because I'm like, man, if I buy this private ranch, I'm also essentially buying all this public land too, because I've got it completely surrounded and nobody can get in there. It's like my own little sanctuary. Um, and then of course you have these corners where you don't control all the way around, but you've kind of got it surrounded on at least two or three sides. And then sometimes these landowners will actually build fences if they have like a corner, right? So they'll build a fence to one edge of their corner from one side and the other edge to the other side. And it sort of meets right there in the middle and essentially creates a complete fence that, that you can't cross. There's some legal issues there. I know I saw it in your uh, your you probably in your brief that you filed uh, in support of these hunters, but in the press release, a law that dates all the way back to 1885 called the Unlawful Enclosures Act. And, and they're not supposed to be basically putting up barriers to keep the public off the public, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the history of it's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, you've got you've got folks, you know, the, the government's trying to encourage people to move out west and settle. You've got they want the railroads to build to, to get that to happen. So they Congress divides up this land into this checkerboard pattern, hoping people will come settle it all. And they did in a lot of places, but you know, a lot of that land out in the West, pretty arid. And uh so a lot of that land didn't get uh settled, and that's what became our the public land in, in the checkerboard pattern. And then, like you said, you and then you know, you've got you also had people sort of fighting over access to land and good land and people running their cattle and their sheep trying to fence off and enclose like huge portions of the land to keep other folks out. Uh, and you had, I mean, there was violence and just all kinds of wild stuff that happened out there. So um, to try to tamp that down, Congress did pass this law in 1885 called the Unlawful Enclosures Act that says, you know, you can't, uh, you can't basically put up fencing or use force threats or intimidation to keep people from accessing public land. Um, and it was applied a few times in court cases in the early 20th century, and then uh, even a couple times in the in uh, in like the 80s and 70s. Um, but this whole so this whole idea though of can you step over a corner still was kind of and is in some ways still an open was an open question. And this case is that the, with the Missouri hunters. Um, is the first step, I think, in getting some real clarity on the legality of stepping over the corner. I mean, it feels like common sense to me that you should be able to, you know, you, you find your marker, there's little survey markers in the ground showing where these corners are, and you just put one foot in front of the other, uh, step over it from public to public, 
and that should be legal, but it's, uh, you know, it's a long time coming to, to get some real clarity on this issue. Well, and again, it, it gets further complicated because, it, you know, and I don't want to sound intelligent here. I'm asking these questions. I only know really what BHA put out in their press release and what I read in other articles about this. But like there is also the legal notion that has been, I think, precedent set in, in multiple court cases that like the private landowners also own the air above their you know, I don't know how high it's probably to a certain altitude, but, you know, so so even if they use a ladder and don't set foot, you know, like what's the guy alleging? Like they swung their arm out to the side, you know, and the, their arm passed through part of his airspace or or what? And then and then what he sued, you know, you mentioned the civil suit. You didn't mention the amount. He wants seven point seven five million dollars in compensation for lost property value. And now I'm not a lawyer, didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I failed to understand how four guys going over a fence on a little metal ladder could possibly have diminished the value of his ranch by almost $8 million. Yeah, uh, and the court didn't understand that either. So even before we got a decision on on the, you know, sort of the meat of the substance, the court had thrown out a lot of the uh, opinions of the landowner's damages expert, because the basic allegation, you're right, is that, um, yeah, like by crossing over this point, if you, your backpack, your shoulders, it's, you have to go through the landowner's airspace. And the right to owning your airspace, I mean, this goes back to old England common law, you know, before even America was founded. And so it's that, and that, so that's a very, you know, you have these competing property rights here. Um, and that's, really what this case is all about. But going back to the damages figure, the court said, hey, this doesn't make pass my, you know, smell test here. Um, how can they be liable for almost, you know, seven to nine million dollars for uh, diminishing the value of your ranch if corner crossing is illegal, right? Uh, the only reason way your ranch would be diminishing value <laughs> is if corner crossing is legal and then that's not these guys' problem. And they, if they win, they, there's no way to get damages. From them they'd be the winners so um the court said yeah that's not going to happen and then in a later briefing uh the landowner said okay yeah we're going to drop our damages figure we just want to keep people from engaging in this corner crossing and that's kind of how that came out so land let's take a step back away from the specifics of this case and the ongoing legal arguments and let me just ask you this as an organization that represents uh, a bunch of public land hunters across the nation. Anecdotally speaking, I'm sure you don't have a study or any hard statistics, but how common is this corner crossing? Is this something that you you get a sense that, especially you know, with the the Onyx uh, and other apps that we all have access to now, that there's probably quite a few public land hunters doing this corner crossing thing, like every season. Of course, most of those instances of corner crossing go undetected and it's just kind of like eric said it, it's happening and we don't really know you know where it's all ultimately going to go yeah I don't, I don't have any exact science there for you we haven't done a study on on how many people are doing corner crossing and i think i don't know how many people would answer that honestly either um <laughs> but i do know you know that this case it was you know highly watched 
by folks here in Montana, folks up in Colorado, folks down in Nevada, folks over in Oregon, because looking at kind of, you know, how this case goes, does it set precedent other places? And I think Eric can talk to that more specifically. There is still a bunch of gray area. I mean, there this the, the court ruled on the specifics of this case. And what has not been said yet is that, you know, not only did they build this contraption to make sure that they weren't stepping on any private land. They also talked to the local warden. They also talked to the local sheriff and said, hey, we're going to go do this. This is, We got this ladder. And they were like, go for it. And so they did this. And until that ranch manager called, what was it, the county attorney, I think 19 times, Eric, um, and, and basically harassed them. That's when the county attorney got a hold of the sheriff and the sheriff finally pressed charges on them. That's those criminal charges. Now, again, as Eric said, they were acquitted of those criminal charges as the sheriff already knew they would be. And so then the next step was really to charge them civilly. You brought up the $7.7 million. This has been a case of intimidation from the very beginning and trying to keep the public out of their public land. Again, nobody, nobody, these Missouri four did not want access to this private land. They just wanted access to public land. And so I think that this is an issue that people are, are watching very carefully. You know, you mentioned again, the Onyx study that they did with CRCP, not the donutted land that's like 8 million acres, but the 8 million that's around, you know, corner crossing, it's such a key place for us to potentially gain more access or at least be clear that that access is legal. And so um, to me, um, you know, this is a question about a little bit about the haves and the have nots. You know, I mean, when you charge seven point seven million dollars, you are trying to intimidate folks. And, you know, one thing at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, as soon as this Missouri four was facing the criminal charges, as well as then the civil case charges, we didn't want them to have to pay for uh, legal fees. And so we raised over one hundred and forty two thousand dollars to help uh, pay for those legal fees. I think we've got about twelve thousand dollars left of that. Um, and now we're probably looking at an appeal. But four common guys from Missouri. Right. And I, I think that they were trying they were really trying to the landowner who's from North Carolina has a lot of money, was really trying to intimidate them. And this idea of devaluing the ranch. I think it's kind of been unsaid in the West for a long time is that, okay, if you have limited access, that becomes part of the value of your ranch. Well, on this corner crossing piece and with the public having access to that, we still have access to it. So it's not exclusive access. If you have a donut of private land, you know, around some uh, public land, that's a different story. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to me uh, that there hasn't been this huge outcry from the private landowners in a lot of ways, like community trying to support Mr. Eshelman it's because they knew he was in the wrong the entire time. Well, uh, there's a really lot of things I want to get into, but quickly to sort of close up something on the legal issues, Eric, the thing about corner crossing is either on the state or federal levels, there's really no law that specifically says you can do it and no law that specifically says you can't, right? And that's part of the problem. Yeah, I think that's fair, um, right? Because you have the right to access public land, but landowners have the right to prevent people from trespassing their land and, and even their, their airspace. And then that sets up this quintessential kind of fight, and it's a fight uh, about, um, you know, it also involves state law versus federal law, like the Unlawful Enclosures Act. You know, and the state law is what usually governs most property rights. And so you have these big kind of, really interesting legal 
issues that go along with, you know, sort of the boots on the ground, uh, you know, how is this actually going to um, affect people? And so, you know, the court ruled that, you know, in Wyoming, there was a case from the from 1915 or so where a guy was trailing his sheep across some land, open land, and uh, they he, it was a corner locked land and there was a, a own property owner that says, no, you can't do that. And they sued him once he started moving his sheep over the land. And the court said, well, this looks pretty darn on point to uh, what we're looking at. The court said it's a, it was an appellate court case. And they said, yeah, no, he's allowed to move across the public land uh, and, you know, from point to point. And I mean, that's an even more wild case because the guy's sheep were like three quarters of an eight, a mile uh, off on the <laughs> private land. And I don't think we'd get that same decision today. Um, but certainly the court looking at what happened there said, well, at least in the minimal level that these guys were doing, if you're doing this corner crossing on foot, you're not touching private land and you're not, you know, harming private land, uh, then yeah, they're good to go. Yeah. And there's really a couple ways that this is going to ultimately be addressed, right? You've got the court cases like we've been discussing, but then there's also legislative remedies. And I know land, like even I think probably as a result of all the attention created uh, by this case in Wyoming, you guys recently lobbied legislators there in the state house in Wyoming to pass a couple changes. So you've got a new law that says you actually have to physically set foot on, on private land to be charged with criminal trespass. So you wouldn't have a repeat of an incident like this where these guys just, you know, basically went through some air and got a criminal charge as a result. So you're trying to prevent that. And then also another change where uh, a law that specifically prohibits people from posting private pro or public property, right? To keep people out. Yeah, and I think, you know, the ruling coupled with the two legislative pieces that you're talking about provides much more clarity in Wyoming. I think there's still more to do at a state legislative level to, I think, address the actual corner crossing, as we say, you know, to make sure that we say that that is legal. But that piece of legislation that was passed um, that said that you had to set foot was huge. That is huge. And I think the other piece, you know, this intimidation factor of posting public land like it's private that's exactly what that is trying you know what people are trying to do and so making that explicitly illegal as well i think takes away some of the angst i would say from the public land users um and now you know going forward i think we'll be looking at future legislative sessions to think about clarifying it even more specifically now i want to take a a bigger picture view here land because as interesting as the corner crossing issue is Yep. When you take when you take when you take the all these 16 million acres as a whole, you know, the eight million that are completely locked behind yep. the borders of private land and then the other eight million that are corner locked. And we think, OK, you know, yeah, there's legal questions. We ought to work something out. But a couple things come to my mind. One, why aren't state legislators, Congress people in Washington and conservation groups such as BHA and DRCP, maybe you are doing this and I'm just not aware of it, but why aren't, why don't we have a national push to say, okay, we've got all these inholdings and corner locked land. First of all, let's start with the inholdings. 
Why aren't we doing land swaps with these private landowners and saying, if you have $5,000 of the people's land completely withheld, how about we just sell you that 5,000 acres that's already completely sealed off inside your borders, and we're going to get 5,000 along a border of yours so that we can still come out whole, or maybe we even give an advantage to those private landowners as a show of good faith. Hey, you know, we'll give you you know, an extra thousand or something, but there's got to be a more practical way to come up with ways to increase the the accessibility to public lands. Absolutely. So, uh, and thank you for the question. So there is something uh, that's already in place and it's called the Federal Land Transaction Facilitation Act, which is a mouthful. But what that is, is to address uh, exactly what you're talking about. And what the great thing is, is that that if you sell, let's say, some public land uh, to a private landowner, and uh, you don't have, you know, another piece that's set up yet, that money stays in one account. And so, like, this is specifically for this. Um, is it going on all over the West right now? Absolutely, these conversations are happening. I think, you know, the piece that you ended with um, is where the rub comes. Like, who's getting the best deal? You know, the best deal is where everybody is happy, and that doesn't happen every single time with one of these exchanges. And so, I think. There's a lot of willing landowners out there um, that, you know, they want to block up their land. The feds want to block up their land. It's easier to manage. It's easier to um, access. But then it comes down to kind of the values of these land and how that like stacks up. And so it is happening. Um, you know, another piece of legislation that was passed and now fully funded, it's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And that provides $900 million a year in perpetuity to do big purchases. One of the things they can do is do big purchases like this. So I think that's another option. The final option I would tell you that's already on the books is that a lot of these states have public access to private land programs. In Wyoming, it's called Access Yes. Here in Montana, it's called Block Management. Um, in Montana, we have 8 million acres of uh, private land enrolled in a public access to private land program. And so could you be utilizing these programs to either get at what you're talking about specifically, you know, some of these inaccessible um, lands, or could that be used also to think about, you know, corner crossing? And so I think all these tools are in the in the toolbox right now, uh, and we need to address conflicts that way rather than in the courts. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you actually answered my follow-up question right there, because, you know, like I said, for the inholdings, yeah, let's just get rid of those. And then for the quarter lock, yeah, I could see it, right? Like you talked about. First of all, kudos to Montana, you know, Fish Wildlife Parks. I've hunted on a bunch of those properties. I've had yeah. success on some of the, the block management is, is an awesome program. I love that. Green now, sign means go, right? Yeah, I, I could see, man, just think of a little cattle shoot in these corners. Like, could we have like an entire system of like, corner crossing rights where it's like, you know, there's a sign and it's like, this is your designated corner cross and it's like foot traffic only. And yeah, I mean, there's this little gate, right? And it's like, you go through the funnel and, and back out onto the public and, but yeah, those landowners maybe get a, an annual royalty for that or, or whatever. And of course there's nothing to stop, um, people, it's no different than leasing, right? I mean, somebody who has enough money and time could contact private landowners throughout the West and just negotiate individual agreements for the periods of their hunts. And it probably does happen, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's happening all over. Um, and I think that's, again, why public land is so important, right? Like, I think that leasing in the East is something that, you know, is kind of uh, very common, I would say. There's also a ton of public land in the East that I think people forget about. But in the West, you know, I think leasing is becoming more and more of a thing. And so as that happens, these public lands become that much more important. I think something you just said 
that we're really looking forward to is really identifying where these corners are. You know, as Eric said, there's like these survey markers that identify these corners, but making sure that those are more prevalent. And so again, that we, the people, the public, make sure that we're in the right area. I think the second piece to what you said is that, you know, we as hunters and anglers, I'd be more than happy to pay for, you know, permanent gates at these corners or permanent turnstiles that go over the top um, or, you know, uh, a bridge, whatever it is. I think that, you know, identifying ones that are really important, working with willing private landowners, I think, you know, we as hunters and anglers will be willing to pay for that. Um, so that's another solution that's out there. And, and to me, you know, I, I started this conversation with really wanting to make sure that, you know, the respect for private property rights and the role that private landowners really play in what wildlife management, right? I mean, we those those lands has been described are kind of interlocked. And without good private land management, those herds are look much different, right? And so there we are working together. And I think there's only a few bad apples to try to push this envelope, both on the trespass side for, you know, the average, you know, man and woman, and then on the private landowner side to try to keep people out. And I think much more people are in this common sense that this is, right? Like, this is such a common sense issue. Let's have more conversations about finding a path forward in that kind of middle ground versus on the left or the right kind of fringes. Yeah, I mean, we build we build bridges and tunnels for wildlife so they don't get whacked on the highways, right? And we we why can't we build some bridges and tunnels and stuff for hunters so we can get from public to public? Mr. Demko, I've been dominating all the questioning, but I know that your brain has been churning, so I want to give you the opportunity to jump in here. Yeah, it's just a fascinating topic. And, and Len, one of the things I was going to ask is you're talking about all these different scenarios going forward. Is there a a priority for BHA? Is there something you really want to try and focus on to maybe try and unlock some of these lands? Because a lot of the stuff you're talking about is probably medium to long range, working with legislators, trying to work on a federal level. Is there anything you think you can make some inroads in fairly quickly? It's a great question. Um, I wish I had that silver bullet, no pun intended, but I think that, you know, for exchanges, these are all conversations that happen to happen, have on the ground. I think the access, yes, piece is potentially, you know, or the public access to private land programs. Those are already in place. And so potentially that could be used uh, pretty quickly. This is all kind of, you know, the, it's still gray, right? And I think there's like this, this, this case provided some clarity in some ways. And so that's initiating these conversations, Mark. And so I think we will find out what is possible in the short term. And then, like you said, what is possible more in the long term? I think over the next six months to a year. Yeah, and, and Eric, you mentioned... Oops, sorry. No, go ahead, Eric, Mark. You very briefly, you know, you don't think maybe this is the end of it. Maybe it'll be an appeal or something like that. Is this something that you think could legitimately be litigated all the way up the chain? Is this something that, or, or do you think at some point the landowners might uh, give up on it? That's a good question. And, you know, I certainly don't presume to, to speak for him, but I think he's definitely gotten all in, you know, so far on this case, and it, the outcome wasn't what he wanted. And I, I expect there will be an appeal, which will go to the the, the 10th circuit. And then, uh, you know, from there, whatever happens, uh, you know, yeah, probably a, an appeal to the Supreme Court. Of course, they, you know, there's no, no knowing whether they would take this case or not. They get thousands a year and take just a tiny few. So, um, you know, certainly, though, I, I do think I would expect that we'll see this move up the chain on the on on the judicial side as well. Guys, what about on a practical level for 
the average hunter. Um, how should the current state of affairs land guide my personal, you know, actions and plans as I head out to areas where there's corner locked lands? And as sort of a second part of that question, what can I do, you know, to kind of be involved in hopefully finding a good solution as a, you know, rank and file bow hunter? That's great. So I think, you know, and Eric can answer the specifics too, um, but I'm interested to hear them. These guys did everything right. Everything right. They contacted, you know, the local sheriff, the local game warden. They built this contraption and they, you know, did everything they could to make sure that they weren't stepping on private land. And I think that's why they got ruled this way in the courts. I would suggest that to anybody that is thinking about corner crossing right now is do exactly kind of follow the playbook that they they utilize. And I think that, you know, you're going to have, you know, some states that are more amenable to that or some sheriffs or wardens that are more amenable to that. And then others that aren't, you know, we just had a director uh, here in Montana say that, you know, that it was it was illegal to corner cross, which was total violation of what they said in 2018 in a memo. And so I think there's like like doing your due diligence, which we all should as hunters anyways, right? Like it's not our fault. Like I think there's, the burden is on us as hunters to be in the right. And so let's do everything we can to be in the right. And I think that's carries the day. As far as, you know, what you can do as an individual, I think, you know, small plug for backcountry hunters and anglers, but I, you know, really belong to an organization to make your voice bigger. And so it's $35 a year. Um, you know, we will keep you up to date on not only what is happening and kind of as these laws and kind of like different interpretations happen through the lawsuit, but we'll also help connect you. And so that we can, um, you know, influence where these swaps are happening that we talked about earlier, state legislative efforts that are happening. We can keep you informed and so that you can engage yourself. We can't talk for you, but we can make it pretty easy. And I would say that, you know, you come up against these forces that a lot of times have a lot of money behind them. We at BHA don't have a lot of money, right? Like that $140,000 that got raised got raised by thousands of people, thousands of people, people like, you know, it's rank and file folks gave money $25 to that effort. And so what we have is the people, we don't have the money, but we got the people. And so I think, you know, for anybody listening to this, uh, you know, you're always stronger in bigger numbers. And whether that's, you know, work that we're doing in Pennsylvania right now, or what we've been talking about here in the West, the more we come together, the more we get, we get for ourselves. Man, you started talking about those evil forces and you got me thinking about beer for my horses. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's like, it's not even that time yet, but I hear you. I hear you. Well, well you guys are out West. It's quarter of three here. I mean, it's getting close. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark and I are leaving for Manitoba tomorrow for a bear hunt. So like, awesome. we're oh, about wow. ready to check out. I'm actually really glad we were able to get together today because I'm going to whip this right around and publish this as our episode for next week. And uh, so, I mean, I thought it was fascinating, Mark. What, I, honestly, Mark, wasn't this one of our better shows? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's a topic that um, if you're in the industry, you hear about, but maybe if you're not following that that closely, it's really fascinating to learn about this. It's not something that anybody would even think of. You know, you think about it, somebody stepping over or using a ladder to go over from one piece of public to another. Uh, what could be the harm? Well, in this case, somebody wanted seven to nine million dollars for the possible damages it, it is fascinating and and i think one of the big takeaways from from this is you know support nonprofits like backcountry hunters and anglers they're doing great work 
Um, they're giving sportsmen a voice, but they're also helping to promote access to public lands, increase access. And uh, these organizations uh, have great volunteers behind them, great staff, but they need the support of everybody, support of you and I. Yeah, and Eric, you don't work cheap, do you? I mean, we, we need lots <laughs> I, and lots of people to join BHA. I do, but I I, uh, I did the, all the work for BHA pro bono, so uh, I'm oh, a volunteer. What a guy! For, I'm a volunteer <laughs> for BHA. I'm the, the, the co-chair of the California ch chapter. So, uh, you know, I think volunteering is important uh, in whatever realm is important to you but you know people need to get back and do more you know do more of that oh, so man. this is this is where i you know kind of decided to put my uh, energy and effort so and, wow and, and just to be clear so people are listening they heard me talk about raising one hundred forty thousand dollars. we got eight thousand dollars left eric just talked about doing this work pro bono which he did like when we did an amicus brief which is basically a friend of the friend of the court and like gave our person, you know, our perspective, I would say to the court on this issue, but the lawyers that uh, were actually with the Missouri four, that's separate from Eric. And so I don't want right. to get that twisted that we just took all that money. All that money went straight to those lawyers for the criminal case, as well as the, um, the case that just got, um, uh, I guess, yeah. dismissed, right. And, yeah. and I, and I didn't there. know, and I didn't know that Eric did all that work for you guys for free. I feel bad now, Eric. I take back all the lawyer jokes that we told before we started the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, I would just say that the yeah the lawyers for the Missouri Four, I think they did an amazing job. Uh, you know, uh, been following all their all this stuff very closely. So, well, gentlemen, again, I I um you know I think three quarters of an hour went by. In, in a heartbeat. And it is a fascinating topic, as Mark said, we'll continue here at Peterson's Bowhunting to keep, you know, our eyes peeled for any further developments. Uh, certainly wish you guys with the BHA and all the other groups that you work with, uh, you know, continued success, not only to, you know, keep awareness of this out there within the, the hunting community, but, you know, as you work on various initiatives legislatively, you know, to to kind of try and, like you said, give a, a situation where there's clarity for the private landowners and the sportsmen so that everybody knows what the rules of the game are. And we can try to all be, you know, ethical uh, players within that game. Yeah, I'd, I'd just leave you with one thing, too. And, you know, whether you become a member of backcountry hunters and anglers or not. A lot of people think their voice doesn't count in this country anymore. They're pretty fed up with politics, right? And they just really don't think they have a voice. And I would say you're exactly right if you don't use it, right? And I think that we're not going to win every single thing that we engage on as the people. But if we're not engaging at all, somebody else is going to be winning all the time, right? And so to me, you know, belonging to BHA, belonging to your local rod and gun club, just being engaged, like stop bitching and start a revolution. And really, that's about the way democracy works in this country. Said another way, you're either, you know, at the table, or you're on the menu. And we're not going to, again, win them all. We're not going to win them all. But we're definitely not going to win any if we're not at the table. So stop bitching and start getting off the couch and actually doing something about it. Um. Do you have any stop bitching and start a revolution t-shirts? Because yeah, if you, should. I was going to say, if you don't, you need some. And if you do, I just bought one. So <laughs> would you please get those printed up and then sell me the first one, Land? 
<laughs> Sounds good, and I and I and I, and I don't know if you're gonna take. A, I'm, I'm probably I'm not even sell you. I'll give you one for free. Don't have to worry about the royalties because this is now you know on on recorded. Well, that's all right. It's trademarked now by Peterson's bow hunting. <laughs> all right, guys. Hey, thanks again so much. I loved I loved it, man. And uh, we keep in touch. Yeah, thank, thank you, you guys so much, luck. and good luck on the bear hunt. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand, or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.